appreciate you doing this um, uh, with me. And I, you know, uh, Alec Bemis from Brassland reached out to me about talking to you. And the first thing he said to me was, you grew up with nine inch nails, right? And I was like, I, yes, that is, that was a very formative, uh, uh, artistic moment in my, my high school time growing up was when nine inch nails came out and started sort of blowing things up. Um, you know, my mom was afraid of them, you know, it was like, like it was, it was, it was the time of like, you know, explicit lyrics came out on CDs and stuff. And so uh, we can get to that. Uh, but I'm kind of curious if you can just walk me through like two-year-old Blake and what got you into, I was reading a little bit of some interviews of you and talking about, um, you know, being, uh, you know, black and queer and those issues that, that the way you have tried to dissect those and in your own art. And I'm just kind of curious if you could start at the beginning and tell me a little bit about yourself and then we can dive in and go wherever we want to go in this, in this time. Well, so the root of all of this is that I'm from Atlanta. Um, so we have to know about, uh, Atlanta is that it sort of had like this sort of insular Southern hip hop scene that of course, like blew up a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of how I discovered music. That wasn't my mom's music. My mom's my number one musical influence, but you know, that stuff's going to be like solid gold and soul and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, classic rock, but not like hip hop. Right. Right. Um, so I think hip hop was the first sort of thing that I discovered, but you know, I think, you know, the sort of uh, uncanny valley that exists with sort of like being around or ostensibly accepted in, in the communities in which like, you know, the queer thing was, was strange. I, I suppose that I, I gravitated toward darker music, mm-hmm. uh, you know, later that manifested in depression. But initially, I think that was just sort of like uh, me identifying with something that... Uh, seemed I don't want to say evil, but that wasn't that was against the mainstream. Right. Well can I can I ask you um how how old are you, Blake? Thirty five. You're thirty five. Okay, so I'm forty two. I'm just trying to put this in context of like so when how old you lived in Atlanta from when to when? How when did you leave Atlanta? Nineteen. Nineteen. So what when you say that you mentioned the word uncanny valley, um can you just dig into that a little bit more for me? Like what did that what were some, and pardon me if I ask any sort of um, insensitive questions or I say something that's maybe not uh, appropriate. So please feel free to correct me on any of this stuff. But can you, can you dig into that a little bit for me? Like what, what specifically was Uncanny Valley-ish for you? It's sort of like just sort of navigating this world in which I wasn't really allowed to exist fully. Um, and... I will allow the fact that maybe some of my uh, gravitation towards rock uh, was maybe sort of like dealing with the questions of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think initially like dealing with, with questions of like queerness or like really being different at all um, really pushed me towards like more sort of uh, fantasy driven acts like Cielo uh, mm-hmm. or Buster Rhymes uh, or Outkast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, on the flip side of that, or like Eminem or like 3-6 Mafia, it's sort of like, uh, I think, uh, maybe my gateway into rock music. Because uh, before, you know, trap was a genre, it was a mm-hmm. place. Uh, and and it, it sort of like spawned this sort of uh, music we used to call horrorcore. I don't really know what that means anymore. But like yeah. in the rap genre, that's kind of the way we talked about it, sort of like uh, music that's almost sound like it was like, um, from horror movies mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that had this sort of like dark element to it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's, they use a lot of the same harmonic structures that, that they, they might use in uh, metal mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Uh, emo or, you know, industrial rock. Uh, so I think that was really my gateway. Um, I, I, Wait, want to play some clips from some things? Yeah, please, please. Um, so this is... Uh, are you familiar with 36 Mafia at all? This is my favorite. Uh, you record. know, uh, you know I, and the, the thing that's interesting to me is like you're naming all of these these uh, you know these artists that were in my periphery. But, I, you know, I grew up on Metallica, Sepultura, Slayer. You know, I, like I was in a metal band growing up. Um, and, you know, my dad was listening to classic rock. We had like 
you know, Gladys Knight and the Pips on in the background. Like there was a lot of soul music too, but it, it coming from a completely different context than the way you were experienced it, I'm guessing. Um, and there was, and the older I, well, it's not a guess, it's true. You were in a different context. Um, but the older I get, like, like it's interesting, the more I look at music and now as a professional musician, I'm constantly being like, well, wait a minute. Like I played in a metal band and the bass player always plays with the double kick all the, most of the time. That also happens in jazz. Like, why, why are we pretending like these things are completely different animals all the time and they don't ever sort of overlap and influence each other? And I'm curious, I'm, I was excited to talk to you because it seemed like you were really, from the beginning, curious about that. I got to that, that sort of curiosity late, you know? Uh, and it, it's strange to think that now we're talking about um, genres breaking down and, and rock's influence on hip-hop, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the 2020s. Or even, uh, you know, in the early aughts about uh, hip-hop's influence on rock with acts like Limp Bizkit and, and Korn, Korn. Yeah, I was just going to say, we were talking about Sublime and all those bands that started having a DJ in the background. And it was like, well, you know, every white kid was like, yes. It was like, well, wait a minute. This has been happening for a long time. Yeah, Method Man, Red Man, Limp Bizkit collab. Yeah, middle school for me. Um, but I wanted to play this uh, clip from Three Six Mafia. I sort of mm-hmm. like it, sort of this uh, intro to these harmonics I'm talking about, the mood that I'm talking about. Um, it's very like dark and moody, uh, and it almost reminds me of um, the beginning of. Uh, Everybody wants to rule the world. Mm-hmm. Like the well, actually, when you get to the, the vocals, it does. Mm-hmm. There's um, hold on. I wanted to cue this up as well because what it actually reminds me of uh, is this band I, I got. Wrap my head. Wait, are you sweating? Park in this intro. Um, and I think that was sort of like when I switched and was listening exclusively to rock, it was like around 2003, but it all sort of came from that. Well, can I ask the, um, you mentioned like one of the things that you were, you were not to go back to the Uncanny Valley for too long here, but this sort of idea of like fantasy, like you were sort of fantasizing about or creating this other world in your head because you felt like you didn't have a right to exist or it didn't feel like you were accepted where you were. And that reminds me like comic books, all sort of like the Marvel series, all that stuff is like this weird taking this massive insecurity that's is felt and turning it into a superpower and really exploring and creating this other world. And, And the thing I'm just curious, like the, like when I think of rock music, I think of white culture in general, and that's a broad brush to paint with there. When I think of soul, I think of, you know, black culture. And I, I'm curious, like what in teasing out stuff, like was that stuff that was crossing your mind at a young age? Like you're, you're, you're interested in, and again, like I'm painting with super broad brushes here. Like, you know, it was, and and it was sort of of problematic uh, in the ways um, in which you instinctually, try to put away or hide your blackness when getting into rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a phase we all went through. Um, as an adult, we all know that it's bullshit, right? Right, right. Uh, all these genres are just sort of made up. You know, you take two singers, one white, one black, who are on the same track, sing the same thing, and they're two different genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, I'm really interested now in the ways in which um, those stereotypes are being broken down or put them their head like so um and then kind of current like 2020 new metal revival um it's the acts that have been celebrated for it are like rena sawayama or grimes it's sort of like taking this like ultra masculine uh early white reactionist culture and sort of like using it to assert power in a, in a feminist lens mm-hmm. uh, you know, or in my case, in, in, a, in a queer lens, uh, it just, uh, there's just something about it that um, allows us to exist in liminal spaces. It's sort of like when you get getting back to comic books where people, 
use these stories to talk about issues that you couldn't really explicitly talk about. Mm-hmm. The long lineage of like world building in in queer art spaces, because uh, uh, you have to sort of uh, try to communicate in the outside world using as many tools as possible. You can't just explicitly say the thing, or or you, you've already lost. Right, right. We're trying to persuade to, to not show you or whatever. Right, right. Well, I mean, what, that, that's one of the things. I mean, one of the things you you were, uh, there was an interview we were giving. I can't remember exactly what if, what magazine it was in, but you were talking about breaking down this idea of what a what stereotypically a queer space is like what it, what what it is like if you just asked some person in a, in a cornfield like tell me what you think a queer space is like there are stereotypes that come with that right and i'm curious for you like do you remember do you have a moment in your mind where you were like today is the day i'm going to break this down and i'm going to try like when was the first experiment for you in public where you actually actively were breaking those things down in your mind maybe not other people's minds but for you it was a is a moment of like I'm going to do this thing now in a space that you aren't expecting it to be in. Oh, I'm not sure. I think it was gradual. It's always sort of my um, life goal to sort of have one life. I think I, you know, did most of my life living double lives, like and keeping everything separate. Um, uh, whether or not that was sort of like being an athlete in college and not really being out or, or only exploring one side of my sexuality, the mainstream mm-hmm. side of it. Um, but then when I would go into queer spaces, sort of like putting things into a box because uh, things that are uber masculine in queer spaces, they're often just like fetishized and sexualized. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, don't always appreciate. Um, mm-hmm. So I would love to tell you that I think I've done it, but I think I'm still like exploring. The <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's part of my, I mean, that was part, I, I know the question is like a very, I, I was asking for a very specific answer about a very, uh, abstract concept of like, you know, how, how you're, how you're tackling these issues. But, um, I, I have enough students and people, young folks in my life who are saying the same things you're saying, but don't know how to actually take that first step, you know, of like, now I'm going to try something with like in a room with live fire and see if this works. And I feel like you said, it's gradual. So can you talk about that gradual process a bit? Um, you know, I think it's, it's experimenting with dress, I, you know, I, I really like to focus on aesthetics because I really, I don't know, there's something about looking good that makes me feel like I have armor on so I can go throughout the world and sort of feel mm, mm. like, you know, when I'm wearing my like sheer shirts or whatever, and, uh, you know, the kids in the train laugh at me, I, I just kind of feel like they'll get it eventually. Like, I look amazing. Um so I think maybe, you know, I, I sort of uh, started playing music uh, publicly in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I was screaming a lot of like, uh, sort of like half outfits where I would like rip jeans and like have stockings on one side and just sort of like really, I was like really attracted to Two-Face. Uh, so I tried to maybe embody as many identities as possible at once, but which is like what I think fashion is. It's sort of like a bunch of, mm-hmm. Separate references. You can play with like masculine and feminine, or you can play with uh, a classic and new. You can play with uh, high references and low references. Or that sort of like you know, wearing ripped fake Gucci or or, or whatever. I, I think that's really um, the way in which I express myself the best. Uh, and then and then in live shows, I experiment with like doing like makeup and lipstick on stage, or like mm-hmm. being extra feminine. You know, while playing like this, like macho rock song, I just I'm still experimenting with ways and in, in, uh, trying to make people feel uncomfortable in a way that that's not off putting. Mm, no, that I I like that. Just the way you said that, you were questioning yourself, or I felt like you were sort of questioning yourself. And I like to me that is what that's interesting. Like uh, this idea that you're you're constantly walking this line, and and people that were coming to mind while you were talking. Uh, do you know Darian Thomas? He's a violin player. He plays with Moses Sumner now. And, and Darian was a student of mine at, or of ours in the group I'm in at SOCI, this, this summer uh-huh. festival we do. And he talks, he was always a, a, a um, experimental dresser is the way I would say. Like every day was like, I could tell he spent 20 minutes piecing together his outfit. 20 minutes. Or maybe, yeah, maybe for me, I, I spent three minutes thinking about it. So 20 minutes would, would be bonkers. Minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's probably way more, but... But he came to mind because he talked. He think I, I can tell that he thinks about his clothes as kind of the suit suit of armor. And then Cornell West, 
the theologian talks about, like he always wears the same suit with the black tie. Um, and he talks about it as like, that's his armor for God. You know, that's like that for him, that's the way he can go out into the world and, you know, and approach people. And for you, I, I just think that's an interesting sort of like the first step is to think about what you're, how you're, how you're perceived visually. Um, and has that changed over time for you? Are there things that you like, are there no no's now for you? Like now that you've done this for a while, are there like rules you have for yourself that you're like, you're unwilling to break? I think never soften myself. I think um, how oh, I was, excuse me, ne- never soften yourself. Is that what you said? Myself. Okay. I feel like initially, you know, in high school, college, I would always try to make people comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, everyone, you know, everything's drag, right? Like masculinity is drag. I, I, I feel like I used to dress very classic and preppy as sort of like a way to like disarm, I suppose, white strangers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was its own sort of drag. So I think like my one no-no now is like I should be dressing for my comfort and not other people's comfort. Yeah. That sounds like... Yeah, that sounds like adult Blake. Looking, look, you know that's 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 an absolutely mature response to to things, and it's you know I'm not there yet, and I'm a straight white guy. Like I still, you know, I still have, like get up every day, and I'm like I look like a silly goose right now. Like, but I, why do I care? Like if I'm comfy, comfy, that makes me better, a better version of myself to start with. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Sorry, there's no question there. That was just a statement. Um, well, okay. So now that like. It, how has your music in your approach? I mean, when I listen through, and I haven't listened to your entire catalog, but but having the Nine Inch Nails sort of thing in the back of my head, that was the the foundation upon I was listening to everything, and I was like, oh wow, like your use of acoustic instruments, like little things like tambourines, um, yes. acoustic vocals with, that aren't processed all the time, but then like really sawtooth synth waves and grimy, gritty stuff. Like, how has that musical clothing changed and morphed over time for you? And, and I would ask the same question. Are there any musical no-nos now that you have for yourself that, that you are adhering to now as an older version of yourself? No musical no-nos. I, I think my musical no-no is I felt like in my younger days, I was always writing to sound like someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there's always a, a part of me that wants my voice to sound like James Brown or initially I think we all go through this as, as black rock singers that we want our, our voice to start the white rock singers we like we want to take out all the texture and we want to take out all the vibrato and we want to get that like rasp of the, of the singers that we grew up listening to and it's just like right, right. I don't have it you know I have something else and I think that that's probably exploring what my voice actually does is what I'm interested in going into the future instead of like trying to sound like something else in my head because best case scenario you sound like that and people have already heard it and right. then, why why would they go see you and they can go see them you know right yeah. right well what there was something you said and, and I got distracted for a second um because I thought of something else um what oh your voice the I mean, I'm, I'm married to a singer. I know enough vocalists too that the voice is something that changes out of, and you don't have control over it all the time. You know, just when you get older, vo- female voices tend to get lower over time. You like, so for you, has that, that's something as a drummer, I don't have to think about. I mean, my hands get slower maybe as I get older, but like, I'm not worried about my hands all of a sudden not being able to play a high C sharp, you know, <laughs> like oh, what, yeah. for you, what, how has that struggle been? Well, that's just technique. I, I think, um, taking myself seriously as a singer is something that's relatively new. Um, before I was a songwriter and I begrudgingly sang my own songs because like, you know, who else is going to, mm-hmm. um, especially when they're so personal and there's an amalgamation of um, all these different genres that I've been listening to. No one else is going to, it's not going to make sense to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's never going to want it. But um, I, I think just like embracing technique, and just taking myself seriously as a singer, which goes hand in hand of, of with like singing in a style that sounds good for my voice and maybe no one else's. Um, so it's, it's all about this entire conversation. Sort of, sort of about embracing the like the purest version of yourself, the version that like actually exists and being okay with that, and not sort of like rejecting other people's 
uh, perceived preferences because we don't know what people are thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, projecting that onto yourself and internalizing that in a way that will, you know, destroy you. Right. And do you have, are you taking, uh, when you say you're, you're working on technique, are you working with uh, like a vocal coach or are you studying on your own? Like, how are you, how are you dealing with I that? I've worked with a vocal coach a lot pre-pandemic. So I've been mm-hmm. relying on that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, this year, I, I'm going to be returning to those uh, before I return to live performance. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I, like, I feel like you, like a, uh, Shara Nova is another singer that I that we've worked with a, a ton. Caroline Shaw, like we just worked with Alicia Olatuja, um, Don Upshaw, and it's like they're people who you know Car- Caroline Shaw or um, Shara Nova still takes like operatic voice lessons, you know, like and she sings rock music, you know, like and she's still and I I feel like that is kind of you guys are kind of outliers and or maybe maybe i'm maybe you're all doing it i don't know but i i love this idea that like the older you get you're like you know what i'm gonna take lessons like that that is such a counter <laughs> counter to what what i feel like most people do most people i don't know if if we're outliers i think that you can tell mm-hmm. you know i you know the death of, of an artist is certainly when they refuse to learn new tricks mm-hmm. um but you could certainly tell, you know, there's some singers in their 60s that don't have any more, and they're the ones that do, and then that's why. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, um, there's one track that, um, it's called, is it Dueling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I the the version I heard was just uh, you on stage. It was I think it was a live performance with you okay. and, and just a guitar player. Uh-huh. Um, and I was really struck by you know, having heard some of the other stuff you did now, granted, uh, pardon my ignorance. If there's a, if there's a nastier version of it than what I heard, like it just felt so clean and crystalline in a way that I wasn't expecting, um, based on what I, what else I heard. And I'm curious, like if I've just totally missed the boat there or like what your thoughts are on that, that tune in particular, cause it got compared to the dirty projectors, which is also like a very specific sound in my head. And I'm just kind of curious, like what, I, and please, I'm not saying anything is derivative of anything. Do not, please don't, don't interpret it that way. But yeah, no, but can you just talk a little bit? It felt like an, like an interesting sort of like nugget that was hanging out there. Um, I'm just curious if you could talk about that piece a little bit. About that song. Um, it's like a rocking chair song. I wrote that guitar, like literally noodling around. Um, but that one is definitely what, what um, unites that song with the rest of my catalog of the drums. And so, like getting back to like being a kid, like those drums, boom, 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 boom—that's the stuff I used to play. We used to do this all the time, like elementary school, like beat a beat out on the desk. And it's like I used to, I used to love doing that. But it's like, yeah, something you could just like beat out, like you know, on a desk, or it's like not. I mean, I had to put it on a drum kit, but it's not really for a drum kit. It's really just for percussion, and that's sort of like that was the rhythmic vocal. Just sort of like expresses underlying tension between like this clean guitar because the whole thing is like having doubts in a relationship, right? So there's like this sort of like clean, lovely guitar, and there's this sort of like really driving, sort of anxiety-driven drum. But by the way, like starts on a beat that you don't expect. Like everything's like tripping over itself. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that that that's what that that song's about. And there's still some tension there, but yeah, you know, it, it is ultimately maybe kind of a love song so well it's it's really gorgeous and i i you know i am uh, i need to know more about your full catalog but uh, like that 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 tune in the just the way it was the way it's structured and i think in the way your voice and the guitar mix i just was really struck by that one in particular i think i'm a sucker for love songs too and rocking chair songs like i'm just a i'm a sap for that shit so <laughs> um, but I want to get to the 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 sort of nut of the reason that that uh, Alec asked me to chat with you was about Nine Inch Nails because you you have a, a deep passion there and I I grew up with Nine Inch Nails um, I happen I not that I was like super into them growing up they were just in the zeitgeist um, and then as I got older one of my my college percussion professor at Yale Robert Van Syce, went to school with Trent Reznor. And was uh, there was a trio formed. I don't know if Bob was in it, but another guy, uh, Tom Freer, who teaches percussion at Cleveland State, 
um, orchestral guy also was in school with Trent Reznor, and they had a band called Exotic Birds based on the the orchestral piece and it was tom trent and i believe tim adams who's also a timpani player <laughs> like like um it was just and, and i i don't even know if any of this stuff exists but like to me that's the weird like the six degrees of kevin bacon or the six degrees of trent Reznor. like that i can't believe my teacher hung out with trent Reznor in school and just played in a weird pickup band with him you know so that's that's like the closest my my orbit came to trent Reznor. but wh- for you what 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 is your interest in Nine Inch Nails, and why why do they sort of scratch the itch for you right now? Trent Reznor's just my favorite composer. I'm glad to hear that there's some sort of a like classical connection because I don't, I don't understand how we, you know these these films are being scored and they're all just so gorgeous. And as soon as you hear it, you know who it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I have a puppy. It's okay. I have two, uh, it's fine. I have two dogs too. It's fine. Uh, let me just close this door. <laughs> Supposed to leave the TV on for her, but I didn't want to have TV sounds in the background. That's all right. Um, so I actually did come across that stuff later in life. I do remember the closer video when it came out, but I was very young, and it was very—it was like one of the things that actually very much scared me on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that was the seed that planted. Uh, There's also this like Prince video that came out when I was four. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Prince in a bathtub, and I remember my grandma turning it off. And it was like, you know, when you try to take, take something from your puppy that she found on the ground, she wants it even more. Right, right. Uh, so I wanted to conquer that fear. I, I wanted to, like, find out what that Prince video was about. And I wanted to conquer, like, my fear of this video. Mm-hmm. I think I circled back to Night Tales when I would started playing in, in rock band. And it quickly became one of my favorite acts because, one, so much of the music reminded me of uh, things I grew up with like, you know, once again, in the Southern hip hop tradition, mm-hmm. uh, but also like rhythmically, like the rhythm they use and the textures that they use are so interesting. And they're so in parallel with hip hop. Well, how, how so? Talk to me like I'm too. Pretend like I just came up to you and I was like, why is Nine Inch Nails akin to hip hop or parallel to hip hop? I think, I, think, I think it's an 808 drum machine that they're using for some of these beats. Uh, and with the Sparks guitars, uh, so here, we'll just do a whole Yeah, yeah, please, please. Um, and explain just for somebody, I mean, I think most folks in the know know what an 808 drum machine is, but my mom has no idea what an 808 drum machine is. So like what, and actually I think most of my students don't know what an 808 drum machine, I think that's, that's sort of like saying like, do you know what an MP3 or what a cassette tape is? You know, like what, what is an 808 drum machine? 808 is now synonymous with that it sounds like I think that's an 808 you see 808 kick is what people want it's like that like vibrating the kick but it is a you know 20th century device like used to approximate a drum kit I don't know if it does a good job of that but it sounds cool uh, and I think I was watching this documentary with um, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine uh, which ended up being the Beats commercial at the end but it was like it, but it, was, it was very good and it um, talked about Dr. Dre started you know uh, with classic records Mm-hmm. And with this little like dinky 808 drum machine, which became the sound of hip hop and later like pop. Right. And it's just, a, it's, it looks like a little keyboard sort of with all these weird buttons and you can program different feels and all this other stuff. Yeah. Right. But it's got uh, sounds built into it. So like yeah. the sounds like yes. on the chronic, on all of that stuff, like those are sounds that came out of an 808 drum machine that were then manipulated by Dr. Dre and Snoop and all these folks. Like they weren't recorded drums. It was yeah. something. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, but I, but I think Professor's doing the same thing, and it's funny because he's doing them a couple of years later. It's almost like he's listening to these records, and he's like, "What is that?" So the first time I want to play is a uh, terrible lie uh, off Pretty Hate Machine. Mm-hmm. And I just love how you know in what we call trap now. There's this sort of like upbeat emphasis, like everything's hey, hey. Hey, and Trip Reznor's been doing it forever. Uh, you know, obviously, I've modeled up the hip hop style. So you can mm-hmm. hear it in Terrible Lives. It's 1989. Jesus. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> oh, can you turn it up a little bit? I don't hear it. Switch to the monitor here. are you doing this to me? 
Twitter was around in 1989. Somebody would have said it, but you know, but things just moved slower in 1989. You know. Oh yeah, but you know, he had to have heard these records. Oh yeah, I mean, this is I, I, we. I, I was hanging with. Um, do you know this group Matmos? M A T M O S. They're a they're a, a duo, electronic music duo from. Uh, they li- they're in Baltimore now, but they they worked with Bjork on Vespertine, and they do a lot of programming and, and building of beats and stuff. And I remember saying something. We were talking about Snoop and Dre and all of those guys, and he's like, "Just so you're all clear, all of those guys, humongous nerds. You do not make music like that if you're not a big nerd who's willing to sit and be like and like like dig around and tease out beats and all this stuff like." You're, yeah. you're not that's not easy to do that takes like hours and hours and hours of work and moving stuff around and like so I would say I don't know for a fact but I would absolutely say that Trent Reznor was hearing all this stuff and consciously aware of how yeah. it was affecting him yes uh, and, and it reminds me of like uh, you know a group like you know Barty Strange or Tur- Turnstile people who are like using these uh, newer hip hop elements and feels and rock music uh we can talk about it more openly now but i, I yeah, just, yeah. Uh, you know i've i've never heard of really uh, anyone outside this conversation to like have a deep dive on that and hip-hop drums um so yeah the next release downward spiral he's got the song reptile everyone knows it has that exact same sort of like upbeat feel but it's like dirtier and grimier in the way that hip-hop became mm-hmm. Oh, can you turn on? Uh, can you just click your click turn on your original sound? I think whenever us it's where's that uh, upper upper left corner, it should say original sound on or off. Um, the information enhance is that like a uh, thing I click on up here? Yeah. It should. Uh, it, it's not a big deal. Um, just when you play stuff, any sound you make, it cuts out, so I can't. I don't actually hear the the track playing, unfortunately. Oh, no, no. I I am so bad at technology. No, it's okay. Uh, original sound. Yeah. That way, it'll just keep your sound open the whole time, rather than gate it. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. It's like if a car horn honks or something, it like will shut off your sound so it doesn't interfere. Um, and so that's, it's just not hearing. Oh no. I do not see that. Okay. No, don't, don't, don't stress too much. not talk when I'm uh, playing. I just get so excited. No, it's fine. I I prefer excitement. So it's fine. (laughs) Try playing it. Try playing it again and sit perfectly still. Don't breathe. Not hearing it. Sorry. Uh, Can you share screen? Do you know how to share screen? I'll share my screen. Sure. Let me make you a co-host. Uh, there you go. Now you should be able to share. What's that? That's beautiful. Now try playing it. See if we hear it. Oh my god. You're making me feel really old, Blake. It's this Ghetto Mafia hit that I uh, I found when I I was like a little kid. You know, I'm very much aware of the music coming out of Atlanta. 
mm-hmm. uh, alive. Now, if I can listen to this and then listen to the frail. Okay. It's very, it's very Trent Reznor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different key. I think it's. Dr. Dre actually mixed the song on. He he mixed one of the Nine Inch Nails songs? On this record, yeah. Okay. Deeper. Yeah, all right. That makes sense. I mean, it, it yeah. makes sense now that you say it, but I never would have guessed that. Yeah, so it's like, he's very much obviously aware of all oh, this. But this, means, but this also means that Dr. Dre was aware, like, that, like, he knew, like, uh, let me ask you this. So we, it, it feels like, Yes, Trent was Trent was heavily inspired by southern hip hop and hip hop in general. Was there any cross pollination the other way? Like, was anybody listening to like was Dr. Dre or these guys listening to Nine Inch Nails and incorporating any of this? Like, was there any sort of reverse pollination back the other way? I can't tell. You know, from what I'm aware of, like West Coast hip hop, it was like very much like the big hits were like very sample based. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're very like cell based and Dr. Dre digging through old soul funk records mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, even up to Eminem's My Name Is yeah 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 uh, so I don't know I mean obviously at this point in the late 90s Night of the is a huge fan and everyone's yeah. aware of them right. uh, but yeah I, I, I do I have no idea I'm just curious like what like what the phone call from Trent to Dr. Dre was and, and like whether Dr. Dre was sort of like, well, I don't know who you are, but sure, I'll take the pay. Or it was like, bro, I can't, I'm so glad you called. I've been wanting to work with you for a long time. Like, I'm curious how that conversation actually went. You know, I, I'm not saying, you know, cause you weren't there, but like, I don't know all. you know, it, I mean, just in terms of like all these backstories, these, you know, in 19, the nineties, the idea that Dr. Dre is working with nine inch nails, that would seem totally normal now in 2022. Oh yeah. But in the 1993 or whenever you said it was like, no, I mean, or 99, excuse me. Like that wasn't something that people were aware of or conscious of as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was that run the MC, uh, Aerosmith collab in the eighties. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Well, Rating back out in the early 2000s. So, you know, everything that goes on behind the scenes in art sort of like percolates up a few years later. So I think maybe yeah, yeah. enough people were aware of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, like the bands I mentioned, like once again, Love Corn, uh, you know, obviously they were sort of around in this era mm-hmm. without having hit yet. So uh, it was probably like an, an open secret. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm, and again, let me ask out of ignorance, like what, just to take it back a little bit to the thing you were talking about at the beginning about, you know, like what, what, what were the, it seems like they're sort of, I don't want to say ignoring any racial overtones or undertones here, but like, was that even a part of the conversation with Dr. Dre, like with these collabs, like a white, you know, a white group collaborating with a black producer, like was race in the room in that way in the way it is now? Like, or we don't know. Like, I'm just kind of like, to me, it just seems like this stuff collabed in Dre. Like, I don't know. I'm just sort of, I'm trying to imagine that collaboration happening now and it coming out and being like, this is, and everybody would have to talk about all the issues around it. But nobody, at least I didn't perceive that being a big sort of issue, you know, in 1999. And I'm curious. Oh, it was. Yeah. yeah, I'm so, I'm. I'm asking out of ignorance here, so forgive me a little bit. It was, you know, like in a, in a collab like this, I kind of don't think so. Mm. But when it becomes more public, I mean, that's the whole thing. Um, um, of it being revolutionary that anyone would consider like a black audience like worthy of um, a worthy get, you know, mm. coverage and just sense of just for cross pollination between yeah, yeah. Uh, audiences. 
and the fact that anyone even considered like, oh, I would like the black audience listen to my music is is like pretty new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. I mean, and, and and that's probably why we don't know about this mix. Like they they didn't maybe didn't want to deal with all of that. It's it's a yeah. it's a credit. It's not like a collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm again. I, I'm I'm just asking questions and and trying to tease out my own ignorance here because like, um, it's just so cl- like in my experience. Like, if this is just a dumb thing, like we did a piece with uh, Caroline Shaw called "Narrow Sea" with Don Upshaw, and Don's a, a just a world famous like vocalist, op, you know, operatic mezzo soprano, like just a beautiful singer. Um we did a piece with Caroline and uh, the piece is based on all these old uh, like hymns and, and um, uh, plain chant, uh, you know, single note singing or whatever. I don't know the exact term, but uh, beautiful hymns. We just did it with Alicia Olatuja, who's a black singer. And just by default of her background, when we were playing it with her, we were like, Oh, that's what these hymns are. And, and without any shade on Don Upshaw or Caroline at all, it was just like the just by default. I mean, Alicia's great. She's all the things. She's a beautiful voice, all these things. But her knowledge and her experience in the room, yeah. we were all looking at each other going like, fuck. Oh, that's what this is, you know. And I don't want to assume that that um, Trent Reznor didn't have that same experience on some level with Dre in the room like by default of having that in the room, forget about wanting black audiences, just like let's only be selfish for Trent and Dre here for a second. Like I'm curious, what were the, Oh fuck moments with Trent Reznor just by default of having Dre in the room, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. In 1999, you know, like where, this stuff is fairly insular and seg- and compartmentalized off in a way. Like you're only really going to hear about Dre if you read r- the Rolling Stone article that comes out, <laughs> or you see him do an interview. Like you can't. He's not on TikTok. He's not on Twitter telling you what he's doing. You know, like all on TRL at this point. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, as much as we talk about TRL, uh, you know, it did do something for. Shrinking these genres. I remember, I think it was either it was either Corn or Nine Inch Nails, and that was like number two on TRL. And like Backstreet Boys were number one. But I'll go home and like try to see what could be the Backstreet Boys. Like, you know, it did do something to sort of like shrink genre. Like when you're playing like Eminem and Dr. Dre, and then you're playing like uh, I don't know, fucking Sum Forty One. Sorry, I don't know if I should be cursing. And then, I've heard it before. Just be yourself. It's fine. Uh, you know, and then you're playing in Sync and Britney Spears, and it's like this, it's this top ten countdown. It really uh, breaks down pop music in, in a way, um, especially that it's not an audio thing. I was listening to a still processing episode about American Top Forty and mm-hmm. and sort of like the challenges that certain like black acts had, like uh, crossing number two to number one. Um, so I think maybe that sort of aspect of it was probably only obvious to black listeners, but in a visual medium, it, it just becomes like apparent, like how mm-hmm. different these acts are marketed uh, and the world that they come from and to sort of shrink them all to this countdown. I think, you know, once again, probably got me into rap music. Yeah, I mean, sorry, we could. I, I interrupted your your mix, your 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 your, your playlist here, but uh, I feel like we could. I would love to just keep talking about this for hours and hours and hours. But we should get back to Nine Inch Nails here. Um, like, what? Uh, what's the next? I mean, okay, so this is 1999. Like, what's the next iteration here of like the next step in there? You know, in terms of how you you would teach me about Nine Inch Nails and their influences. Um, you know, Downward Spiral is very noisy and loud and raucous, and I think this Dr. Dre mix on Even Deeper gives us the same sort of um, space that you'll get in a hip-hop mix, mm. where everything's like, it, you know, it's like the first, like, mix for beats, where everything is, like, in its place, and it's super pristine, and it's super clean, and the fragile really sounds like this all of a sudden. Mm. Um, 
you know, it's 99. So we're talking about like Hype Williams uh, era of like music videos. Rock Hip Hop is huge, like super clean and just like hi-fi. What's the um? What's the the reasoning behind um? I've, in both uh, like the southern hip hop stuff you're playing in this, like what what's the the impetus behind like the really distorted bass? So you can hear it and feel it. You know, it's it's a it's a body thing, um, and and I think um, you know in that era we still mostly had consumer facing speakers that were very trouble heavy. We're very tri- uh, trouble heavy. Is that what you said? And, and so making the bass line bass sound like that would do what to those speakers? They would make the bass pop more if you're using sort of like higher frequencies and greater frequencies. You know? uh, uh, later, around this time, it became like the era of big subwoofer. So it was like a way of announcing your presence, right? You would ride around your car. Yeah, yeah. Like heavy bass. And it's probably annoying here in New York City, but like in Atlanta, it was like the thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you would like, you know, pump out some huge bass sounds. And now that's like the way that hip hop is built. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you can hear in that song that, that that's sort of like a very early example of like the big, gritty bass you're supposed to feel. So it was uh, partially just a, a result of where the technology was at the time in terms of how this, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you think of some electronic, straight up like, electronic music you're listening on your laptop you know some some albums are mixed to sound good on laptop speakers which are all treble right and then and you can hear the bass but if you put the if you put that same track on a massive sound system it's all of a sudden like whoa this wasn't built for this and so to me that's just a really interesting i you know it's like uh, i don't know if you've ever read our band could be your life by michael azarad it's a it's an amazing book uh that sort of chronicles the the punk scene in like the 90 late late uh, early early 80s into the early 90s um and they sort of it starts with like husker do and ends with the meat puppets and and it's a fascinating book all about like their tour life but like one of the questions i've always had about pop music is like or uh, punk music is why are the songs all 45 seconds long (laughs) and you know you know look at listen to the Minutemen or or uh you know uh, uh, mission to burma or any of those bands and then henry rollins just explains it very clearly he's like we show up we play until the cops come. We only have time to play one song. And so you're going to play your 45, sec- 45 minute, 45 second long hit, and then you're going to get shut down. So if you wrote an eight minute long Fantasia, you're never going to get to play it. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, it was just a product of getting arrested, you know? Like, <laughs> and so like these sorts of little things are, it's not un- uninteresting to me to know that just like speakers sucked at the time. Yeah. You were like <laughs> dropping on your station wagon or whatever. And you know, yeah. And so, so once, but you know, when the subwoofer came out, were, were later tracks mixed differently? I mean, obviously they were then mixed differently to sound good on those speakers, right? I mean, I'm asking sort of the dumb, obvious question here, but. Well, yeah, you go into sort of like what you want the bass to feel like, and it is mixed differently for, like, it's for like a different purpose. Do any of these bands go back and like, has Nine Inch Nails gone back and remixed any of their old albums to update? I think I've seen some on streaming services, but you know, there's only so much you can do because at the end of the day, like, you know, you can hear this between that track and uh, Reptile. Well, yeah, like there's this big synth bass in Reptile, but there's something about the space that they leave Mm. that like really allows this space to sort of like warmly vibrate your body. I see. Okay. Uh, Dr. Dre. That's, Sorry, that's all. This is very interesting to me. I mean, that. Um, all right, sorry. Continue. I, I keep interrupting you here. No, no, no. It's great. There's, there's so much to talk about. Um, this is probably my favorite song on the fragile, uh, but it has that. Why choose proven commercial? Excited quality sleep from Sleep Number because every five k easy bucket. This podcast is brought to you by Sleep Number. I'm a, I'm a Sleep Number four sort of guy. 
cut out again sorry um yeah you can sort of hear that same bounce and now the tempo is picked up so you can really like imagine like i don't know Amy Azalea rapping over it or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so what is trent reznor doing like in terms of i mean i i i I've been impressed by bands like Nine Inch Nails and folks like Trent Reznor because it feels like they've sort of survived the, and I would even toss like Dave Matthews Band and Metallica in the mix here too of like they survived the moment when they were the hottest to keep doing what they were doing like Green Day, same thing. Like you don't have to like any of these bands but like they pushed through the moment when they were the most popular, had some dips and then still rode the wave and survived for longevity. And I'm curious like what, where is Nine Inch Nails now? What is Trent Reznor doing? Is there any weird sort of like experimental stuff that if you listen to, you'd be like, you'd have no idea that was Trent Reznor. Like, is there... I don't know about that because he has such a signature sound. I know it's Trent Reznor. I don't know if other people do. Like The Watchmen. Do you, if you, I don't know if you watch The Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, of course. That music is is incredible. Did he do the music for the for Watchmen? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, a Trent Reznor Atticus Ross uh, production. For Christ's sake. See? Well, I had no... I mean, Grant, you, you're more versed with Trent Reznor's music than I am, but I never would have... I never would have known that unless I looked it up or asked you. <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can pull out my favorite. There's all this... Um, there, There is more, like, classic Nine Inch Nails, but, I mean, it's not like Trent Reznor to you. Gorgeous, yeah, yeah. Tension. Uh, there are movies that I'll go see, and I'll hear a sound cue, and I was like, mm, "That's Trent Reznor." It is. I can. You can always. I mean, I can always tell. That's. I mean, I'm gonna go back and rewatch this series. So, what? How did? How did he get that gig? Do you know? Like, what? No idea. I mean, I know they did like the Social Network, right? Uh, you know, now Trent Reznor is just one of like the hottest, uh, you know, people in that world. So I don't know that I would compare Nine Inch Nails to other, other bands because they've, they've had so many lives and it's mm. all, it's all always subtly in zeitgeist. Yeah. Well, I'm, man, I'm, I'm going to go back and do my, my due diligence on Trent Reznor here because I, and I think that was my, my point in wanting to talk with you because, you know, for me, Trent Reznor is locked away in a bubble of 1990 for me. <laughs> You know, it's right there with Sepultura and all the other things that I grew up with. But it's clear that he's been in my life all along in ways I just wasn't aware. You know, and that's that, that's really interesting to me, man. And uh, well, let me let me just because I don't want to steal. Let me just see where we're at here. I've, I've been lost. I have stolen an hour of your time already, Blake. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. This is fast. And we should honestly, we should just do it. We should do a round two, um, and really focus on like one or two pieces or one or two things and just like really do a deep dive because um, it's clear I'm in, I'm ignorant as all get out on this stuff. <laughs> you should start like an online course or something about Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor. It's, it's one of my, the few rants that I have. It's just like just how amazing and um, of a job that Trent Reznor has done, I guess, through 30 years of, uh, of learning and integrating genres from like jazz and classical and hip-hop and, and creating this sound that on the third people are like oh this is like industrial rock, rock which it is but there's just so much to it there's so many little textures and so many little subtleties well, uh, and i'm i'm still i'm not uninterested in the idea i mean just thinking about the content of watchmen i mean taking it back to a, your original statement of feeling like an uncanny valley with where you are with race and, 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 uh, sexual identity, all that stuff. Like Watchmen is about racism (laughs) and, and, and the, in Tulsa and like, like the, the Tulsa massacre and all that in black wall street and all this. And here we are with Trent Reznor, a white guy writing the entire score. And like, to me, I, I, that's not a, I think it was, I don't think that was done lightly. I think because of his relationship with 
folks working with doctors. Like, he has authority in some way that other composers don't. And I'm just kind of curious if I'm misdiagnosing that or if, or if this is just – his music's great and it just sounded great with Watchmen, you know, like <laughs> – I mean, I would, I don't know. I would, I would lean towards that. There's just sort of like, um, beautiful uneasiness mm. that I think goes with walking through the world differently. Like, you know, everything is really great, but there's this unease that's hard to get at. Um, and then you have to live with, you know, through every emotion that you'll have, like, yeah. you know, sadness or, or joy or, anything comes with a little, a little cost. Uh, I, I just think Trent Reznor does that better than everyone. Well, man, uh, this has been a, a, an hour I'm very grateful for. Um, I, and I hope we get to cross paths in the future. And, and like I said, my door for this, excuse me, my door for this podcast is always open. Um, I think you have a really genuine, you have a very strong view on yourself and the world but I really want to just put a pin in something maybe you're not conscious of, but your generosity of spirit is something that I feel is lacking in general in the world right now around conversations like we had. Um, and I'm just really grateful. I appreciate you holding your, your beliefs, but also being willing to talk to a total stranger about them and be honest and genuine about things you felt as a kid. Like all that stuff means a lot to me. And I know we just met. So I just, before we end, I just want to say thank you for being generous with me there. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I just, we're, we're all here just to, to share ourselves for a second and then we, we fade away. So this is, this is great. I had a, I had tea with a very good old friend of mine the other day and he said, we're all temporary beings in the infinite loop. And yeah. I was like, Oof, <laughs> that, that, that was a, that was a heavy thing to think. But well, Blake, before we wrap up, where um, where a can folks find out about you personally, and what if you had like four tracks that for somebody who you know is maybe was maybe born in twenty ten and has no idea who Nine Inch Nails or doc, maybe doesn't even know who Dr. Dre is. Let's not assume anything anymore. Like, what would be the things that you you would say? Like, here's your your appetizer course for how to get, how to be introduced to this stuff. Oh man. Well, I think you have to start with closer. Okay. Uh, you know, that video and that song, quite frankly, um, they will probably know it, you know, it's, it's still referenced. Yeah. yeah. Um, to like feeling into like the world and the mood, um, run like hell off of ghost six is very new. What was that like 20, that was 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, run like hell. It's off of what? Ghosts. The, the ghost series. Number ghosts. six. Okay. It's like jazzy and classical and rocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back to head like a hole mm-hmm. just because, you know, for people's early work is so, you know, I started listening to old Chili Peppers recently. Again, one of my favorite bands and like something about when they were like, yeah, it just feel it's it feels like anything's possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe we're in this together now. It gets sort of like the the huge magnum opus of of, of it all. All right, awesome. And where can folks find out about about um, your music and your your act in general? Just I guess Blakeful on Instagram is the easiest way to find me. It's like wonderful, but it's me. I'm Blake. It's Blakeful. Blakeful on Instagram. All right. Well, I'll check it out. Blake, thank you so much for your time. Uh, stay healthy and I'll give you, I'll give you a heads up when this, when I'm done with this, I'll send it to Alec and then, um, you know, use it as you see fit. And, um, I would love to, the next time we talk, I would love to talk about your violin playing. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. You, okay. you mentioned that you, you were like, as a kid, I just felt like I wanted to practice all the time. And so like, I, I will, we'll start there the next time we chat, but in the meantime, stay healthy, stay safe. And, uh, I hope all is well. We'll look forward to chatting. All right. Thank you so much. All right. See you, Blake. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. 
Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.